podcast listeners, and welcome back to the Rational Face Podcast. We are back again with Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife, Laurel, and myself to do another installment in the Ask a Mormon Sex Therapist series. So, Laurel and Jennifer, please say hello. Hi. Hey. Uh, before we get started, we do, we've, it's been, I don't know, maybe a month and a half or so since the last episode. Before we get started, uh, Jennifer, do you have any announcements? Last time we talked, you had some workshops that were coming up. Uh, do you have any announcements mm-hmm. or sales or anything that's going on? So the, the workshops are still coming up. Um, I'll be um, doing one in Orange County, August 25th and 26th, I think, in Santa Ana, and then uh, one in Salt Lake, which has sold out for September 21st and 22nd. But because it sold out so quickly, and I have had a lot of people express interest, so I have a pretty long wait list, I think I'm going to open up a second workshop, which will probably be the weekend before. So I think, uh, without looking, I think it's like, it's like September 15th and 16th or 14th and 15th of Friday and Saturday. So that's the plan. And probably that will, the details will be put together for that about the time this gets released. So, um, so I will be in Salt Lake teaching that art of desire workshop for LDS women and it's two full days and it's a lot of fun. So, yeah. All right. Perfect. So mid September art of desire in Salt Lake. That's right. All right. So we'll put a link to that as soon as you have those details. We'll put a link in this, the notes that uh, that go with this podcast episode. Great. Like I said, it's been a little while since our last episode, so we've accrued a couple questions. Um, I think a lot of th- a lot of common ideas that, or I guess situations that come up. And so, Laurel, why don't you read the first one about garments? All right. My husband and I have been married for seven years and have three kids. We are both active members of the church and are devoted to keeping our covenants. I am the spouse in the relationship that tends to have less of a sex drive. It takes more effort for me to get into the mood while my husband could have sex anytime. We have recently started listening to the Rational Face podcast and have found the information in it very helpful to understanding how we improve our intimacy. About two or three years ago, we discovered that if I didn't wear my garments to bed, it helped our feeling of closeness as both of us really enjoy skin time, even if it's not sexual. I now wear my garments at night maybe once or twice a month. Also, we were on vacation recently and I wore a strappy sundress out and about. Both of us were turned on by the little bit of extra skin and by the fact that I was wearing cute lingerie underneath. After talking about it a bit, we decided to try out not wearing the garments on date night to increase the desire for intimacy later. We both found our desire for sex went up and are continuing to make that a regular part of date night. My question is, we are told in the temple that we should wear our garments throughout our lives, which right now I feel like I am doing. But in the recommend interview, we are told more specifically to wear them night and day, which I am not doing, but it is helping to increase the intimacy and desire between my husband and me, which seems to be a good thing. I am conflicted. Should I wear them 24-7 or should I feel okay with what my husband and I have found helpful for our marriage? Okay, good. So I would start with just saying that this person is not alone in her questions and her dilemmas around it because just working as a therapist with LDS women in particular, this is, you know, that for many LDS women, garments mean a lot. They are, you know, a positive reminder for them of their covenants and 
a sense of being close to God, but they can also be challenging to their sense of their sexuality and just kind of a connection to their sensuality and to their bodies. And so I would just start by saying, you know, I know of many LDS women who've made the decision to do similarly to what this woman, woman is describing, which is on date night to not wear garments or to, you know, allow themselves to have more sensual and intimate time that is not a kind of, um, it's not a challenge to whether or not they value their garments. It's really about making room for another way of being in relationship to their body, to their spouse, to their sexuality, and finding a balance on that front. Um, you know, I think how people work this out in their own minds, as you know, I talk about a lot, really comes down to what people believe is right and what they feel is, you know, f they feel at peace with for themselves. Because I, as you probably have heard me talk about ad nauseum at times on this podcast, is the issue of integrity and really standing by what you believe is good and right and loving in your particular situation. And so I know that, I think what's inherent to this person's question is, is the idea of what is goodness in this situation, because I take my covenant seriously, but I also see a very positive impact of around the decisions that we've made. And am I being disobedient? You know, am I being flippant about this? Um, when clearly I can see that it's been positive and favorable for my husband and me. So I think that this is, I think that there are some people maybe listening to this or just in the church that would say, you know, it's always, obedience is always the higher law and it's always what you need to do. And it doesn't matter if you're having this other positive experience with your husband because what God really cares about is compliance. And, and you know, everybody has to discern who they believe God is and what is really expected of them. But that's not my view of faith and religion and what the point of faith and religion is. You know, I think that Christ was very clear that the point of faith and the point of commandments and the point of religion is to create in us deeper capacity to love, that love is the higher law, not obedience. And so that any kind of yielding or shaping of our behavior should accrue to that capacity in ourselves is to love deeply and to have the kind of wisdom and knowledge that comes through love. And I think Christ was really critical of the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees who were hyper fixated on the externalities of faith and the kind of measurable elements of it, but also of the lower law, which was about you know, obedience and compliance, and Christ was bringing the higher law, which is about love, and which is in many ways harder to live, in my opinion, because it requires our wisdom, and it requires that we really think and consider what is the, what is the better part in this situation? What is the higher way to live? And, you know, I think, I can't, I'm not quoting this directly, but President um, 
Packer said once in a talk that the temple, the church house, the um, stake center all exist to support our ability to love within the family. And a lot of times we see it the other way around, like the family exists to support the system. <laughs> and I think that's the wrong way of seeing religion and faith. It's there to support our ability to love and to grow into uh, human beings capable of love and capable of goodness. And so I think that's the point. And there's probably no greater gift and higher source of strength than a loving, passionate marriage. And so I think the things that create that are very, very important, very, very valuable, very, very worthy. They create stability and comfort within the entire family when parents have that um, worked out within their marriage. And so it's a high value in our faith. It's a high priority in just loving, stable families. And so I think regarding it as that and making room to create um, a good sexual relationship and using your faith to support that, not a faith that undermines that ability to create intimacy and passion and um, sexuality. It's kind of a tricky thing because it's like uh, you end up finding yourself like a uh, the president of some large company trying to find a tax loophole where <laughs> you can find like we have this finely uh, written behavioral code and you try and find this loophole and say oh well they just say like the garments they're not part of a covenant they're a reminder of a covenant so then there's some more leeway there but then at the same time you have these temple recommend interviews where they reiterate the night and day and so it's like the loophole well, gets well, closed off. Well, here's a loophole if you want one, Brian. <laughs> is they say, do you wear your garments day and night? And this woman does some days and some nights. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's another loophole <laughs> we've got right there. So it's not, you know, and I don't know. I mean, I, I think the ultimate question at the end of a Temple Recommend interview is, do you feel worthy? I can't remember exactly the wording, but yeah. do you feel worthy to attend the temple. And I do think it is a process of, of checking you up against your integrity. But ultimately, I think it comes down to whether or not you feel worthy. And I think we need to create more personal accountability in the way we talk about our faith. Mm -hmm. Because we often create too much dependency in um, in our thinking in the church, and I think in a way that doesn't really facilitate our spiritual development as people. Right. Instead so, of finding loopholes, we should just take it upon ourselves, like the final question yes. that you're referring to. Are you worthy? Absolutely. Yes, that's right. Because ultimately, we all stand before God someday. It's not, it, it, you know, we are ultimately accountable for ourselves. Um, and so I think that uh, you know, I really believe strongly in a God that values integrity over getting everything right. <laughs> values integrity over just sort of blind compliance because it's the pressuring yourself up against what is wise and good that creates capacity within 
your own soul. And, you know, if we believe in a theology where we're going to become godly, like we will become like God. And in order to do that, you have to create your own capacity for wisdom and discernment, not by being little automatons. And so, you know, we talk about obedience is the first law of heaven. I see it as literally the first. It's the beginning point. And so structures help for protecting us when we're young and immature. But then you grow line upon line into deeper wisdom um, if you really are becoming, you, you, your measure of spiritual development is your greater capacity to love and be loved, greater wisdom. It's not anxious, you know, rigidity is not the measure of, of spiritual development. So I think that's sometimes we lose sight of that. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the other ways to go back to kind of the loophole, loophole method, loophole finding or creating method is when you read more about the history of the temple and the history of the garment, you find that it wasn't, it hasn't been a concrete, unchanging thing, you know, since, since the 19th century, it hasn't been this unchanging thing. There's been times where the garment's been altered in various ways to accommodate comfort for instance, and so knowing that that it's kind of a plastic part of uh, one's expression of of faith, that the way that you wear it and incorporate it into your faith life really is um, something that's important to you as a person, and so you're again the final person that uh, that makes that decision. Right. That's not set in stone, you know, from ancient times forward right. it's it's something that's that really should play a role in in your faith the way that makes sense and the way that functions in a way that works because we right. know just from historical records that it isn't unchanging exactly yes that's right and i think sometimes we get a lot more fixated on controlling each other than in creating strength clarity and wisdom in each other and so sometimes we talk about things in an effort to kind of intimidate and control. And I think that's a lower way. All right. Well, let's move on to our second question. This one's a little bit shorter. And uh, this comes uh, from a man. He says, okay, this should be simple, but it's not. My wife and I have a really hard time communicating about our sexual needs. We're never able to discuss it without a lot of tension, and the conversations never last long. This is, I think, because there has been so much misunderstanding about each other's needs, understanding sexual cues, low, high desire differences, etc., that things get invariably defensive quickly. I love the suggestions you give in your podcast, but I'm really struggling at knowing how to implement them. Anytime I discuss our sexual relationship with my wife, I feel like I have to put on my body armor first because it will be ugly and lead to nowhere. I'm about at the end of my rope and am beginning to wonder whether our sexual differences are just irreconcilable. How can couples who seem to be polar opposites sexually discuss their sexual relationship in a constructive way? Okay. So I, because I don't have enough concrete on this, I'm just going to speculate a few things and, and give a couple suggestions. I mean, what I would say is that my guess is that you each have a view of yourselves and what you want that 
the other person's view and desires contradict. And because you can't get the other person to validate or come towards your view, it's just super duper charged. And so just opening up the question is high reaction time for both of you because you're having difficulty dealing with the other view. You're having difficulty dealing with the other person's view and perhaps the other person's view of you. And so what I would just say kind of off the bat is one way to move forward is to really, um, how to say it, it, sometimes when I see couples in gridlock, if I were to give them one bit of advice, it would be go in and tell your spouse where she's right about you and where she's right in her dislike of sex with you or whatever the situation is on her side. Um, because that will help you get out of the fighting for whose reality is going to dominate, because that's what this is about, it sounds like. The other thought I have is it may be, and I don't know, it may be that your wife is less interested in dealing with your sexual desires and uh, the troubles in the sexual relationship than you are. I'm not certain about that because you may be looking more interested than you in fact are. Maybe what you are interested in is just her buying your view. But sometimes what happens is when only one person really wants to deal with it and the other one doesn't, you can't move forward because the other person doesn't want to come to the table and they don't want to start looking at what's happening. But I would say if you do think your wife is interested in having some peace around your sexual relationship, and you are as well, I would probably recommend you do my Enhancing Sexual Intimacy online course because what the course helps you to do is to kind of break apart what's happening and to look at what the meanings are. You know, the questioner is, is saying like lots of misunderstanding and lots of misreading of cues and mixed desires and so on. And what the course allows you to do is to really start looking at yourself and your respective contributions to your difficult dynamic and how you've created a meaning between the two of you that isn't desirable or isn't easy and therefore sex becomes undesirable at least to one of the two people. And so the more you can get conscious and aware of what's happening, the more you each have the ability to make different and better choices around uh, your sexual relationship and what is what's trying to get negotiated between the two of you. So I do, I do think um, beyond going in and listening to your wife to um, understand where she's right about you, I would say that's one practical thing you can do that would help you move out of gridlock. But I would say beyond that, it may really benefit you to take the course. So that's my quick response to that one. Okay. Um, that, that one kind of resonated a little bit because it, it sounds similar to kind of a typical faith crisis narrative where one person, you know, goes on this binge reading all this material and then suddenly has this new view and the expectation could be if I share the same information with my spouse or my mm -hmm. friend or whoever, then they're likely going to think the same way I do and they're going to have the same reaction as me, and then we'll be on the same page. And so mm -hmm. this is just 
that uh, expectation with a sexual relationship as the subject matter where I have this new view and I think I've solved our problems. And if you read this and if you, if we talk about it, then we'll be on the same page. And, um, it ends up, I mean, the, the basic idea is that two human beings are not going to respond to the same information or the same ideas or concepts in the same way. And right, definitely. I think there's some level of accepting that you're different people and you're not going to have a Venn diagram that completely overlaps each other. Yeah, that's right. And then also, you add to that uh, the self-deception, especially in intimate relationships and emotional and physical intimate relationships. The 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 way in which we easily lose track of how we impact our partner or how we undermine or interfere with the things that we even profess to want. And so couples um, often have difficulty moving forward because they can't see themselves in a realistic way and they use the blind spots of their partner to keep their blind spots alive. Mm -hmm. And so it's our self-deception that really often, and our our indulgence (laughs) in our self-deception that keeps most of us from truly growing up and moving our relationships forward. I mean, the truth sets us free, but most of us are terrified of the truth about ourselves. And so, so we avoid it and, and then we pay the price for that. All right. Well, that's two down. I think we have time for one more question. Uh, this mm-hmm. one is another question submitted from a woman. So I'm going to ask Laurel one more time to read the final question for today. All right. My husband and I have been married for 18 years. We have been going to marriage counseling for about four months, and it doesn't seem to be helping. In fact, the counselor started seeing us individually because together wasn't working. Long story short, my husband has become extremely needy and smothering. He relies on me for all of his happiness, and when I'm not giving him the physical affection he wants, he gets really unhappy. He's afraid I'm going to leave him, despite me telling him I'm not going to do that. He says he needs constant reassurance that I love him and I'm not going to leave him. I understand he is really insecure right now and needs to work on his self-esteem issues, and I don't want to make anything worse. He recently told me he had searched how long it would take him to die if he stopped taking his medication. He has a chronic type of cancer that is kept under control with a daily oral chemotherapy pill. So I feel selfish for feeling trapped and smothered. I have tried so hard to give him what he wants, but it never seems to be enough. When I freely give it, he takes so much more than I was wanting to give. And now I dread any type of physical affection. I give it because it's what's expected of me, not because I want to. I don't feel loving towards him. I feel I'm all used up. It's pushing me away, and I find myself wondering if divorce is my only option. But I'm afraid that would push him over the edge. How do I find those loving feelings again? And how do I not be so turned off from giving him physical affection? Okay, good. So this is, you know, a really challenging situation. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to make a guess here that the reason why individual therapy felt easier is because their the wife, either if she was honest, the husband was reacting so much or the wife was editing so much in session that it was hard for something meaningful to happen because my sense is uh, that the wife is is chronically managing the uh, insecurities and feelings and reactivity of the husband and 
smothered is exactly right. She feels, you know, completely uh, entrapped by his supposed neediness. And I'm saying his supposed neediness because, you know, I think that, I'm trying to remember exactly how she said this, but basically she was saying that, you know, I've, I've tried so hard to give him what he wants, but it never seems to be enough. And what I would say is, is it never will be enough uh, that you are trying to solve something that will never be solved in the way that you're sol trying to solve it. Because you're trying to, you see your husband as a person whose um, self-esteem, sexuality, desirability, all that has to be managed through you. And no matter how much you put out and give and try to prop him up, it never solves anything. So like if what you were in fact doing was to your husband's genuine benefit, you would see a husband who was becoming less needy, more stable, more able to regulate himself, more self-confident. But instead, you're feeding the beast in a sense, and you've really just created a husband whose sense of self revolves around how much control he has over you. And it's not a kind of overt control that maybe some people would think of as a controlling spouse. It's a kind of, you know, what I would call, you know, perpetrating from a one down position, a kind of inverse power hierarchy that from the one down needy position, he's running the marriage. And so there's really no room, and I, I'm sure I'm saying things that you know, but, but to just re reinforce it, there's no room for you to belong to yourself in this marriage. And that's why you start thinking about divorce. It, there's no room to desire your husband in this marriage because he's somebody that constantly has to be managed and you, you feel him sucking the life out of you, which he is doing. And beyond that what you're doing only gives him a sense of control, not a sense of actually being loved or a sense of self-esteem, meaning it doesn't solve anything and it even reinforces his low feelings about himself. Because even if he doesn't acknowledge it openly to himself, he understands that he's being managed and accommodated, not desired. And he understands that he's functioning in an undesirable way. He understanding that he understands that he's using you. He's taking something from you that you don't really want to give. And um, that is never going to yield what you both profess to want, which is a happier marriage. So, um, so I think that, you know, the question that you came down to is how do I find those loving feelings again? And how do I not feel so turned off from giving him physical affection? I would say that the only way to really desire your husband is for the two of you to deal honestly and openly with what your husband's doing. And what I imagine makes that very hard to do as a couple is that it's sort of the unspeakable reality because the idea that he's so fragile is on the table and that he's psychologically fragile and that his health is fragile and so on, 
that this would be like to put him over the edge. I think you even use that language, that this would somehow be the, the meanest thing you could do to such a fragile person. But I think part of your resentment is that you don't actually buy that he's so fragile. Meaning if you really, really thought your husband really couldn't do any better and he was truly offering his very best, you might find it exhausting, but not, I don't think you would have the kind of turn off resentment that you have. Um, I think part of the reason you feel resentment is you feel manipulated and um, used. And so I think that your husband doesn't have a lot of strength, but he is perpetuating a weak position within himself. And in order to get strength, he's got to confront with you the way that you've co-constructed a relationship in which he um, takes and you accommodate. So if you want to desire your husband, that's got to be faced. And I think your husband has to face how he sort of demands a validation from you that he knows is cheap ultimately and that, that he's taking more than is being offered. And I think you need to confront me both that why have you been doing that? Meaning what has your husband pushed in you that this has felt like the way to be in relationship? And for some people in your position, it's almost safer to be in the kind of managing, resentfully accommodating position than in a position of being more open-hearted and desiring. And admittedly, your husband has probably been a person that's hard to be open-hearted and desiring of. But I imagine he could also say, part of the reason I'm so needy is because she manages me, but she's not very open-hearted. And so, you know, I think you're in a dynamic that reinforces the immaturity in the other person. And that you know, if I were in your shoes, I would probably ask my husband to to say, like, I don't want to hurt you. I, I want to be happy with you. And yet I feel like you and I have come to a kind of unspoken agreement that I have to manage your sense of self and that this is my job through basically being loyal to your neediness and I've done it, but it doesn't ever create real desire. And I feel like the life's getting sucked out of me and I don't want that to happen to us. So it requires your honesty and honesty is hard and it is uncomfortable. Um, but I think it's the only way that your husband can find his true strength to deal with and actually love you better because his self-absorption is reinforcing his, his self-contempt and to actually step up and be a kinder and better friend. That's what's going to help him feel better about himself and giving you room to belong to yourself and to also have a life of your own while being married to him his ability to tolerate that and to provide that through managing his own dysregulation will make him be more 
uh, feel more desirable, accept your desire for him as a real thing. It will be the way he could earn his own self-respect. And I imagine he and possibly you, wife, come from a world that's in which people take from each other in the name of intimacy. Um, because probably this is part of his low opinion of himself is being um, in that kind of dynamic as a child, but also what he knows how to do as an adult that's interfering with his ability, with your ability as a couple to create something different and better. I mean, I guess my, my only follow-up question would be, I mean, you kind of addressed this, but I mean, what, what are some of the very basic practical conversations that they could have that they might have to start having over time? Because I imagine this is going to be something that if they want to face it, will take a long time to unravel um, and change. It, it may be about lots of conversations, but I think it's more about regulating oneself without doing the losing strategy that they each know how to do. What I imagine is that for the wife, it's very hard for her to be honest, okay, because she doesn't want to puncture her husband's feelings, but she also has a hard time regulating her own sense of self when he's dysregulated. And so part of the reason that he's had so much control or been able to demand so much accommodation is because she has a hard time not doing that, right? So. I would think it has probably less to do with conversation, although of course that's a part of what needs to happen, and more about her not rushing in to solve something that she can't in fact solve and being able to see her participation in creating a husband that's hard to desire and to tolerate the discomfort of, of her husband's discomfort. Um, that's part of what it is to differentiate and it's part of what it is to actually give people the space that they need to really grow, is to manage your own anxiety. And so, you know, if you, um, you know, I follow David Schnarch's work a lot and also the work of Murray Bowen who was a systems therapist and in the mid 19th, 20th century. And he talked a lot about the idea of anxiety, that anxiety in couples gets diffused when they work out these kinds of systems. So that is to say, the wife gets anxious if her husband's feeling bad. And so even though she hates it, it's easier to go in and have sex with him or touch him or manage him or you know, prop up his ego or whatever. Um, because then at least she feels a higher sense of control, like she can actually do something and manage the anxiety that's in the room. And when he feels like he can be anxious and get his wife to come towards him, his anxiety goes down, right? And so couples and families can handle anxiety um, when it's diffused among the, the parties in the couple or in the family, they can handle it more easily. But if you're gonna actually grow, you have to metabolize more anxiety within yourself and to not use the people around you to manage what is your work or what is your job or what is your responsibility. 
you know, what is a virtue is to take 100% responsibility for exactly what your responsibility is in a marriage or in a family or in a, any group and 0% responsibility for what isn't your responsibility. And that sounds very selfish, but that's actually one of the most virtuous things you can do <laughs> is to really do what your job is in any situation because it also frees up other people to grow in the ways that ne they need to grow. When we get in trouble is when we rush in to kind of get anxiety to go down in the moment, but then we stabilize immature or destructive patterns. And, you know, I think that's the virtue in creating goodness is tolerating difficulty up front for that's what sacrifice is. You take your difficulty up front to create something better ultimately. And it's against our human nature. It's, against, it's natural man to not do it. But what creates goodness and godliness is doing that. So is there like a, that's a, yeah, it's a really good clarification of, of, I realized what I was trying to get at. Is there, is there like a solid example of what you're talking about? Maybe not with this question, so you don't have the details, but you know, of an example of not rushing in to end the discomfort because, you know, you need to change the way you're operating with someone? Well, the example that comes to my mind really quickly is just the first time when I was a young therapist and I knew I was um, sitting in front of a really psychologically abusive guy and he could be very intimidating and demeaning to his wife and he was very justified. And I knew in my heart of hearts that I needed to talk straight to this guy about who he was because he would disorganize his wife but in the way that she would try to name what was going on and he would sort of humiliate her and she would get disorganized. And I knew I needed to say it. And I, I grew up learning to be a nice girl and you never tell men especially uh, anything they don't want to hear. <laughs> And that was how I learned to manage my anxieties. You go in and you make other people happy with you. And I knew if I was going to do my job and do what I, they were paying me to do, I had to tolerate that he was not going to be happy with me. And so I remember like taking like lots of deep breaths and just knowing I like I needed to stand up and say what needed to be said. And um, I said it. And literally, I remember feeling like the room was turning around. <laughs> like I was so anxious because I was doing what I needed to do. And he like barked at me like he just moved in on me so quickly. And immediately I'm like, OK, never mind. Oh, yeah, yeah, I think I must be wrong. <laughs> like I just <laughs> backed off completely because I was so anxious. And then I just completely sort of, you know, got disorganized and moved away. And the, the reason I say this is because <laughs> Well, first of all, it allowed me to see what I had done to myself and in the couple's therapy and what that I needed to get better at managing my anxiety. And that, so the reason I give that as an example is I was kind of taking my discomfort up front to do what I really believed was right. But then when the consequences came, my brain kind of couldn't handle it. And I went back into my old nice girl role to their detriment and my own. And so, you know, basically I just came back the next time and I tried again and then I got better at it and I got more organized in my new, in a new position. I got better at managing my anxiety and keeping my mind together in a new sense of who I was. 
in the and the thing that gave me the courage to do it was knowing I was doing what needed to be done. So that's one version of it. It's it's when you're having a hard conversation with your spouse, and they're pushing on those buttons on you that you that you like to react to. You get all self-righteous about, and instead of getting self-righteous and reacting, you calm yourself down and you stay constructive. You know that that's what I'm talking about in the real time is that you don't let your I talk about this in my courses a lot. These these losing strategies, these reactive things that we do, that feel good in the moment, but keep suffering alive in marriages, and that you have to really track what it is you do so that you can push yourself to do the better thing in the face of a lot of pressure on you to do the thing that's familiar to you, and so. That's what development is all about. Yeah. Um, as you were talking about responsibility, uh, this idea came to mind. I just recently finished reading the book Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. Mm -hmm. And he talked about the way that we perceive um, responsibility when we do something that's kind of our default mode like whatever our yeah. daily routine is or our routine in a relationship, we don't, we don't view whatever happens. Like if you go, if you drive the same way to work every day and you happen to get in this freak accident, mm. you don't see that as being, um, you're responsible for it because it's your default status quo sort of mode of, of mm. going to work. But if you did something different, if you stopped at a different gas station or whatever, then because that's not your normal way of doing things, you're you perceive that you are more responsible you have more of because you acted, you moved yeah. outside of exactly. the status quo and what you normally do. Whether the normal pattern is something good or neutral or easy or difficult, it's it's just moving outside of that that is when we perceive that we have taken more responsibility. So inaction is easier. In, inside uh, our brains because we're not taking responsibility habitual but action, action. yeah habitual yes. habitual inaction is easier but actually taking action and having the hard conversation yes those are always going to be know, more difficult because we're actually taking responsibility and i'll just say one more thing about this because i know this is getting a little bit long but i would say that when you step into new action or action that's driven by a sense of what you believe is right even if it's hard you literally expand your capacity as a person and you expand your sense of self. And so my sense of who I am as a person and as a therapist has been expanded through doing hard things that I believe were right and took some courage. It's expanded over time and has, and there's more capacity there. And so, you know, what I'm doing in my marriage counseling and in my, the, the workshops and courses I do is I'm trying to help people see how they can literally expand their capacity to love and to be loved, to expand their sense of who they are, because that's really what's at the core of stable, happy marriages. And many of us prefer to kind of just do and deal with the things that we can get the validation of the other person around. And so we constrict our marriages to our detriment. And so we have to work against that natural man tendency. So, yeah. Yes, we do have to work against that. 
Good thing it's just men that have the problem, not women. Yeah, just natural men. Those <laughs> natural women are non-existent. It's only natural man that we have to overcome. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> oh boy. Well, those were all, I think, three interesting and good questions. I think the first two probably are more common than the third. The third's a more specific situation, but a lot of good discussions. So. Thank you both Jennifer and Laurel for being here and recording the podcast. Yep. Thank you.